I think the third or fourth or the last book in the Old Testament, as far as I think. Remember that the prophets were essentially preachers. And so we're hearing this sermon, or these sermons, from a man who's inspired by God, Zephaniah. And according to the first verse, the word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now... What do you learn by that introductory verse? Where does this message come from? God, the word of the Lord. That's what makes this important. But you also learn some things about Zephaniah. Primarily, what do you learn about Zephaniah here? Yeah, you learn about his ancestry. Now, um, of the... uh, uh, writing prophets, the prophets we've got a book from, about half of them, you know, list their father. About half don't. One of them goes so far as to list their grandfather. Um, but, you know, only Zephaniah goes all the way back to what would this be? Father, grandfather, great, great grandfather. So that's kind of unusual that you'd have a prophet identified by his great-great-grandfather. And the reason for that, I think, is exactly what Ryan said. His great-great-grandfather was a very famous Israelite, Hezekiah. What do you know about Hezekiah? He's a king. And uh, that means that Zephaniah was in the royal family. Now, in Israel, the northern kingdom, you had frequent changes of dynasty. So the fact that you were related to a king from before wouldn't necessarily mean you were related to the current ruling uh, lineage. But in Judah, how many changes of dynasty did they have during their time? Zero. All one dynasty. Which makes Zephaniah related to who in this book? Josiah. Josiah. They're some kind of cousins, you know. I never have figured out how to deal with all that kind of stuff. Now, he's speaking in the reign of Josiah. What kind of things do you know about Josiah? (laughs) He was faithful. Time of reform. Time of religious reform. (laughs) He became king at a rather young age. Do you remember how old? Eight. Eight. That would be a kind of young age, don't you think? Wonder what... An eight-year-old does as a king. I have an idea. Exactly. Who runs the kingdom when you're eight years old as the king? (laughs) Could be. And the uh, counselors and the cabinet and, you know, whatever else. Until the king gets to be older... And as Josiah got older, he started seeking the Lord more and more. If you look at the historical accounts, when he was 16, he made some really good steps in seeking the Lord. More when he was 20, more when he was 26. Do you remember one of the famous things that Josiah did? Didn't he, like, rediscover the old law? Yeah, he, he, they, were, they were doing, like... Um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, re something of the temple. Restoration. Restoration, yeah. 
restoration of the temple, refurbishing, and they discovered the book of the law that had been lost in the temple. I guess nobody had been in there cleaning out the shelves or whatever. And uh, so that was really important in his kingship. But you wonder why Josiah had an, an attitude to want to seek the Lord and do all those things. After all, <clears throat> Josiah uh, had who as his father? Do you remember? Ammon, very good. How long did Ammon reign as king? Two years. Two years, and what kind of a king was Ammon? Yeah. Not very good. But two years isn't long enough to have much impact. Who was Josiah's grandpa that had been king? Manasseh. And how was he? Really, really bad. And how long did he reign? 55 years. Now at the very end he reformed, but it was too late for any good. But almost 55 years of bad king. It's amazing that Josiah turned to the Lord and started trying to do what's right, and really, Josiah was good. You start reading in 2 Kings 22 and 23 and things like that, Josiah was really good. He was one of the best kings they ever had. He died a tragic death at a young age. Anybody remember how old he was when he died? I want to say like 29. Close. Put a 3 instead of a 2. 39. And uh, he died uh, in battle. But, uh, but I'm guessing, I can't prove this, but I'm guessing that one of the reasons that Josiah turned to the Lord was the prophesying of a distant cousin like Zephaniah. You can imagine, because Zephaniah seems to be, from what I can see, prophesying in the early part of Josiah's reign when they were still doing wickedly based upon Manasseh and Ammon and all that. And I'm wondering if Josiah didn't know about Zephaniah. I mean, they're in the same family. And if he didn't listen to some of these things, and that's perhaps part of the reason why he turned to God. A good preacher can make an impact on somebody who's got a good heart, a young man who's not been corrupted so much yet. And so that's how I'd like to think of, you know, Zephaniah as kind of one of these guys who steps into a really bad time and who at least has a great deal of influence on his distant cousin, Josiah. Do you have any comments or questions on this introduction to Zephaniah? It would have been the same generation, wouldn't it? No. Josiah is actually a generation before. (laughs) Yeah, and here it's Zephaniah, uh, Cushi, Gedaliah, Amariah, Hezekiah. You go one more. Right? (laughs) Yeah, you do. (laughs) Trust me. Take your shoes off, too. But, yeah, yeah that's, that's the one question mark. When you have, actually, one more in Zephaniah, to think of him preaching in the early part of Josiah, but you know how they are in big families. I mean, you know, sometimes you may have uh, two kids that are separated by 20 or 25 years, and so, it, you know, by the time you get three or four generations down, they may be kind of off sync. You understand what I'm saying by that? Uh, so, that's, that's my guess, is that uh, Zephaniah, even though he was one generation lower, 
was perhaps older than Josiah. <coughs> Josiah, the one that was trying to be exterminated, wasn't Athaliah trying to exterminate? Josiah? That wasn't Josiah. That was Joash. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those Joe kings are complicated. So it'd be kind of like the Denise. They have a <laughs> sister and a niece that are the same age. Yeah, they don't fight, but they have a son and a, a son. granddaughter that are almost the same age. Yeah. I'm talking about like, the ones that are here. Their their sister and their niece or their nephew, I guess. Yeah, it's actually their brother and their nephew, but yeah. Got them back. But yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, whatever, there's something like that. They're more confusing in the Bible. More James, too. Yeah, I can't keep up with all those guys, you know. It's kind of like those names in the Bible. They're all Aya, uh, and the names, it's all John. All right, any other questions on this introduction? All right, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll tell you what. He starts this sermon out with a bang. <laughs> you know, you kind of often build up. When he starts out, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. You know, universal judgment of God on the earth. That should get people's attention. Um, and what all was he going to remove from the face of the earth? Man, beast, birds, fish, and stuff. Now, do you see kind of an order there when he goes man, beasts, birds, and fish? First order of creation. Yeah, he's running creation backwards. This is decreation. And do you remember another time when God destroyed uh, everything from off the face of the earth? The flood. Is this better or worse than the flood? Worse because fish too. Fish weren't killed in the flood. You know, water is not really a big you know, problem for fish. So this is universal destruction. God bringing his judgment. Now notice you've got two declares the Lord. So one at the end of two, one at the end of three. So God's saying, I'm going to wipe them out. And if he's going to wipe them out, that includes Judah. You know, his people are also coming in for judgment. Comments and questions on those two verses. Alright. Why? Why judgment against Judah? Uh, let's do 4 to 13. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back in following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord and inquired of him be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments, 
And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who will fill, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, wail, O inhabitants of mortar. For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about that at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, The Lord will, will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, and their house houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Alright, that's a mouthful. There's a lot of reasons why God is upset with Judah in this section. Do you notice them? In verse 4 and 5, what's he upset with Judah over? Idolatry. Baal, idolatrous priest, bowing down to the host of heaven, that would be what? Host of heaven? Sun, moon, and stars. They worshipped those things back then. Uh, swearing by Milcom, etc. They were worshipping false gods. Now, what do people say today? Do you ever hear anybody say things like, well, you know, everybody has the right to worship in their own way. You know, every nation, every people has the right to choose their own gods and the people that worship. Is that what they thought in the Bible? Is that what God's word says? Well, you know, is God tolerant of people uh, worshiping in various religions? You know, they had a lot of different religions back then. Baal and Milcom and, you know, sun worship and so forth and so on. Did God really care that much as long as they were sincere? Yes. I mean, how many times do the prophets condemn the worship of idols, the worship of other gods, other religions. And he expected his people to be faithful to him. Now, what does it mean in verse 5, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom? What does it mean, swear to the Lord, or swear, swear by Milcom? <clears throat> They're kind of all putting them on the same level, aren't they? And if you swear by a God, what do you say? You believe in him? Yes, because to swear by a God, you're saying basically what? If you swear by Milcom, what are you trying, what are you saying? That God keep me accountable to answer this. Yeah, exactly. May Milcom punish me if I don't do this. So if you swear by a God, you believe in that God, and that he could actually do something to you. Well, they swear by all of them. They think they're all there and can punish them. Whether it's Milcom, whether it's Baal, whether it's Jehovah, it's all one the same thing to them. You know anybody today who thinks every religion sort of, you know, the same? You know, it doesn't make any difference whether it's one or another or another. It's all kind of, you know, it's all for God. You know, it's, it's all, you know, religious. That's kind of the way they work. There is a word that's used in, you know, theology, I guess to describe the worship of many different things at the same time, the belief in many different things at the same time. Do you know what that word is? 
Pantheism is there. It's, it's good too. I'm thinking of syncretism. Do you know syncretism? Syncretism just means you believe in many different things. And that's what you had among the Israelites in the Old Testament so often. They believed in this, and this, and this, and this. They believed in God. They believed in all kinds of gods. Just like people do today. People today, well, I believe in this, and this, and this. It doesn't work. God won't take. It'd be kind of like, what would you think about a woman who loved many men? She loves her husband. She loves this man, and that man, and that man. You know, guys... You want to marry a woman like that? You know, you're just one of the list. God didn't want to either. And so he's going to punish. Verse 6, what is he condemning them for? They're not close to him. They don't want to be close to him. They don't want to, they don't want to inquire of him. What does it mean? They haven't inquired of him. They haven't sought him. They haven't inquired of him. What's that say? They his opinion. Exactly. They don't really care about what he thinks. They don't turn to him and ask advice. So what do they do? If they don't ask advice from God, what are they doing? Just doing whatever they see. Exactly. You know, whatever they think, whatever they want, they're not listening to God. Comments through six or questions? Why did it start the whole word? Because God's judgment on Judah is really a subset of his universal judgment and their behavior has made them just one of all the nations on the earth. So he's kind of putting it in the context. It's kind of more shameful if they're just lumped in with the, all, the, all the other nations because they behave like it. Kind of what Amos did too. Yeah. And a little bit like Micah does. There's a lot of prophets who like that approach. Other thoughts? Yes, Jay. Kind of like, the way I look at this book is he does this chapter two. He'll, he'll watch the, the big picture and kind of zoom in and slowly but surely come to the point where you want to get to. Sure. It's kind of like taking the whole world view and just kind of zooming into the real point, the real part of the problem. I agree. Good. Other thoughts? You look at seven. Be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, here's what I think. Well, what do you think when you think? Be silent before the Lord God. What would be an analogy in our lives? Be silent before the Lord God. Are there any, are there any times that we have to be silent in a certain situation like this? Any time the world leader gets up to talk, we're quiet. Absolutely. What about if you're in a courtroom and the judge comes in? What do they say when the judge comes in? All rise. You know, it's the idea of respect. God is on his throne. His day is here. And the Lord, look at the end of verse 7. What's he done? He's consecrated his guest. Yeah, he's prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. Now, when you think about a sacrifice, think about the peace offering. When they offered a peace offering, first they burned some of the animal on the altar, cooked it, and then what did they do? What was the second stage of the peace offering after it's been on the altar? They ate it. it. A big sacrificial meal. So the Lord's doing the same thing. He's got his sacrifice, and he's consecrated some guests to come in and share the sacrifice. Eat it together. What what sacrifice did the Lord have here? Judah. Judah, these people. 
And who were the guests that were coming to eat? The Babylonians. <laughs> this is very ironic. <laughs> the people he's writing to are going to be the sacrifice that are going to be eaten by Babylon. That's what he's saying. Why has he done that? Well, verse 8. The princes, the king's sons, are singled out for punishment because the life of a leader matters. And he, you know, he's more responsible even than the people. And what is he condemning the, pre, the princes for in 8 and 9? <coughs> yeah, they're wearing foreign clothes. What's wrong with wearing foreign clothes anyway? Yes, exactly. God wants his people to be different, distinctive, and they just sort of like act like the world around them. Do we ever have that problem? We ever like the style of the world? You know, we want to look like the world, we want to act like the world. Can we do that and be Christians? <laughs> the world's not with the Lord. You know, we've got a different style. When we are trying to be like worldly people, we want to just fit in. We're not gods. We're not the people belonging to the Lord. So he's condemning you. You are poor and close. You just look like the people in the world. And they build their houses with violence and deceit. It just tells you they're abusive and corrupt and dishonest. And so what's God going to do to them in verse 10 and 11? What, what, what are you going to hear? Wailing and howling from where? The fish gates. The gate where they brought in the fish. And from all the places of business. You see these people is very focused on making money. And the howling and the wailing comes from the places where they were trading and having commerce and buying and selling stuff because they're people who are very oriented toward their business. And so God silences these people. And in fact, how thorough is this destruction going to be? Every single merchant, every single one that handles money is going to be gone. That, that's true. And what else? What's the Lord going to do? Yeah. Exactly. That's the idea. You get a lamp. And you're looking everywhere, in the corners, you know, in all the hiding places, go up in the attic, you know, wherever, and find everybody. You know, it's going to kind of a search and destroy mission. And particularly, who is he punishing in verse 12? Complacent, yes, exactly. You know, they just don't really care. They're just kind of stopped and stagnant. And what are they saying in their hearts? What the Lord won't do good or evil. In other words, what are they? Yeah, he's not going to mess with us. We don't have to worry about the Lord. He's not, he's not doing anything. We can just get by with anything we want to. Because the Lord never really sees us. He's not really ever going to punish us. What does the Lord think when people think that? 
Yeah, he's going to show them a thing or two. You don't want to think that way, because God doesn't take kindly to that kind of, uh, you know, mentality, that kind of mindset. So look at what the Lord does in verse 13. Devastates their houses. He says they'll build houses and not inhabit them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Does that remind you of anything? Build houses and not inhabit them? Yes, there were some other passages in the prophets that say that. Does that sort of remind you of something from earlier in their history? Well, they said whenever they came into Canaan that you're going to take the houses and the vineyards you didn't plant. Yes, when they came into the, the land of Canaan with Joshua, God said you're going to live in houses you didn't build. And you're going to eat of vineyards that you didn't plant. They were going to take over the Canaanites' houses and, and, and farms. Now it's just the conquest in reverse. You're going to build the houses and plant the vineyards, but you're not going to get to enjoy them. They call these, this is again kind of a theological term, but it makes sense. They call these the futility curses. You do all this work and you don't get anything to show for it. And it's a typical way of God saying, no matter how much you do, I'm going to make it to where you don't get any profit from it. That's God's judgment, and you can see exactly why here. Comments and questions? Shake. Verse 9. <clears throat> All those who leap over the threshold with that idea. That is probably a pagan uh, law where um, you see that, and maybe it goes back to this, I don't know. Remember when Dagon got beat up by God when the Ark of the Lord was in the house of the Philistine God and from there on out they wouldn't step on the threshold because that's where their God lost his head and so they, they, they step over the threshold so because you just don't want to walk on the place where your God got beat up and decapitated either from that or maybe from other things apparently it was a pagan practice that they wouldn't step on the threshold like the doorway they'd jump across it and he doesn't want his people having pagan practices. That seems to be the consensus of the commentators. I don't know a whole lot about that other than from that analogy with Dagon. Is it like a superstition? Yeah, like, like a religious superstition. Exactly. You know, does God want us just picking up all the habits of all the religions around us and trying to be as much like them as we can be? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to be as much like other religions as possible? We're ashamed of God. Maybe we're ashamed of God. We want to fit in more. Well, why else would we want to do that? We want to deal with the controversy. Yes, we don't want to have to argue. Or why else would we do that? We want to cover all the bases. Yeah. We want to make sure that if, the, if that really is true, well, I should be doing that just in case. There are yes, and that's a lot of their mentality was, you know, if any of these gods have anything to them, we want to make sure we're in. And why else would we do that? Why would we want to be as much like other religions as possible? Yes, get them to like our religion, because we're a lot like theirs. So we want to fit in well, and so that everybody will be comfortable with what we're doing. Those aren't good things. Who should we be listening to anyway? The Lord. We're not supposed to be listening to everybody around us and watching what they're doing. Well, they're doing it. We'll do it too. 
It's supposed to be, well, God says it, that's what we'll do. And, and that's what you see the Israelites doing all the time. Constantly corrupted and badly influenced by all the nations around them and whatever they were doing. That's a real danger. You know, it's really, you know, we want to fit in. And we can't fit in. Not with them. We want to fit in with the Lord only. Other comments and questions in verse 13. All right, good discussion. 14 to 18. The day of the Lord is near. Listen fast. Sounds like the day of the Lord is good. The mighty man cries aloud. The day of wrath is that day. The day of distress and anguish. The day of ruin devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cries against the fortified cities and against lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against God and their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord for in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end, and he will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. That is kind of a scary passage, don't you think? What's the uh, key word in this passage? Day. Day. The day. What's that day like? Dark. Dark. Bad. This is the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath. How's it coming? What are you saying, 14? It's coming how? Quickly. Quickly. <laughs> you, it's not going to delay very long. And what's the warrior going to do? Now, why does he tell you that the warrior will cry out bitterly? Even the most hardened veterans are going to be scared. Exactly. You know, the warrior's the guy you'd think he's tough enough that it wouldn't phase him. Oh yes, it will. God's destruction is going to terrify even the warrior. Nobody will be able to escape because the Lord is coming against these people. Look at verse 17. What is the reason for God bringing destruction? That's all it takes. They've sinned. That settles it. And so God's going to pour out their blood, destroy their flesh. What does it mean in verse 18? Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. Can't buy their way out. Exactly. I don't care how much money they got. You can't buy off God. When he decides to destroy you, you can't just say, Oh God, I'll give you this. I'll pay you off not to destroy us. This is God on the rampage. This is God in the fire of his jealousy destroying the earth. Jealous because they have not been faithful to their marriage covenant with God. God is bringing destruction. That's the message of Zephaniah. You want to know why Josiah repented and led the nation back to the Lord? I wonder if this chapter wasn't a part of it. If you'd have heard that sermon and you had any conscience at all, whoa. Comments and questions on Zephaniah chapter 1. I mean, it's just kind of the idea. He really lays it out in every every sense. The idea that you're going to destroy them and the invasion, but also economically. It's just, 
save them. They're not going to be able to save themselves through fighting, you know, every every possible infestation that a city may come upon is going to be involved in the destruction of Jerusalem, and there's nothing you can do about it. Pretty uh, depressing, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty frightening. We make this comment. You guys are doing very well. I know when you get together on Friday nights. Some of you do not sleep uh, all 10 hours that you used to sleeping. And you're all being very alert and paying very good attention. I really appreciate it. That's helpful to me. I can teach more better when I know you guys are listening. And I know it's hard for you to do that. But I know you care. And I appreciate you doing that a lot. Very encouraging. And keep that up. There's some good things in this. And the more we can concentrate and get out of it, the better it is. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O oh, undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meet, Kabir, who have uphold, who have upheld the, his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps this isn't what you would have expected to come next. I mean, chapter 1, destruction, unavoidable. And this section is, what? Repent with the hope that maybe God won't destroy you. He is not trying to frighten them out of their wits. He's trying to frighten them out of their sin. Sin. That's exactly what he's trying to do. He's still holding out at least some possibility that God will avert the destruction. I think that's what Josiah listened to. And God did delay the destruction because of Josiah and the nation's reforms during those years. He says, gather together, you nation. And what's the key word in verse 2? Before, before the decree takes effect, before the burning anger of the Lord, before the day of the Lord, time is not on our side. You've got to be urgent. You've got to act before the destruction comes. It's too late after that. You know, that's the same thing we see. Is there a, is there a time limit for us in repenting? <laughs> Absolutely. What's the time limit? The judgment day or death or hardness of heart absolutely what are three things will end the chance to repent either the Lord will come back that could be at any moment or you'll die that could be at any moment or you may get to where you don't care as much anymore and you'll never be touched by the message he says, before, 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 get it done now, guys, because it's too late once the judgment takes place. Can you imagine what would happen if you were to hear, you know, before this class is over, the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God? You know, that would be destiny, time for repentance, over. When the Babylonians came in, too late. Judgment seal. No way to escape. So before is the key element. 
And in verse 3, what's the key word? Seek. What do you seek? The Lord. That's the main thing. You seek God. That's the first thing you've got to seek. And then seek what? Righteousness. Good, godly behavior. And seek humility. You've got to humble yourself to submit to God. If you do that, if you seek the Lord, righteousness and humility, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. This perhaps, that's New American Standard reading, but this perhaps is used in Joel, Jonah, here, to indicate that, that even repentance does not force God's hand. It's not like God is obligated not to judge if we repent. But perhaps... Judging from his merciful, compassionate, patient nature, perhaps God will not destroy if you seek the Lord and seek righteousness and seek humility. That's Zephaniah's appeal. Please turn back before. Comments and questions? Kevin? It wasn't for the Israelites. It wasn't like, yeah, he's right. They're killing us. We're dead. Let's just repent right now. They, they had like Egypt working, helping them out. They're like, oh, we got this. We're okay. I'll repent later. I'll repent when we're actually in danger. And when they're in danger, it's too late. You're right. Yeah. See, people put off what they need to do now. You know, I'm just going to notice. I mean, you, you have a lot of people who say, how can God is merciful? Say that. But I think it's very interesting to notice how he is that extreme with this service. Yes, you're right. He's very extreme in his judgment, yet he's very extreme in his mercy as well. And that just shows us the seriousness of what we're doing. Because if God is going to react in such a manner as to either punish us or you know our repentance, he then is merciful that quick. It, it shows how serious the nature of what we're doing is, as opposed to his reaction. We need to get a good concept of God, and sometimes what people see in God is reality. If they only see God as being mercy and not wrath, they're just half of God, and they're not, you know, turned from Him. But God is both. Yeah, Shane. I think even more. I think somewhat even more important is that they can see themselves for who they are. They're saying, "Well, why would God do this to me?" Well, look at, the, at seeing themselves as what they have done. A lot of times we won't say, we can look at other people and say, Gary, why did you do that to me? You're not even focused on what you've done, maybe what I might have done to hurt you or whatever else. So they say, well, how could this have happened? Well, you look at your life and you think of everything you've done, and then you ask that question again. But people don't want to look at that. They don't want to think about themselves. They don't want to think about what they've done. They're just focused on what's happening and how they can feel sorry for themselves. Good point. Yeah, good point. This would make a really good invitation or exhortation, verses 1 through 3. That's a powerful little section. Other thoughts? <laughs> Okay. Yes, Cameron. And it's also not just like that he's not just a uh, kind God. He's also wrathful. But sometimes people forget that he's also a kind God. They think he's he's destroying these people. They just read the first chapter and they don't go on to finish it. And so they need to realize that God will forgive. He can forgive. And you can be saved. But you have to change your heart first. Amen. You give you a chance to repent and change your ways. But when the people don't, that's when God's wrath comes out. 
And what would you expect? You know? That's what my mom does, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you probably will when you become a parent. <laughs> section we shift gears all together we go to prophecies about other nations judgment prophecies now why in writing to Judah would Zephaniah tell about prophecies against other countries you're exactly right it sort of puts Judah in with the other countries and when God punishes other countries it ought to be a warning He'll do that to us if we don't seek the Lord. And it also shows you one thing about God. He's the God of all the countries. They always thought, well, this country has their God, this country has their God, and all that. No, God's the God. Every country answers to Him. He's the universal Lord and ruler. So, what we're going to look at is judgments against nations in all different directions. Would he also... I mean, they were relying on some of these other nations' gods. Good point. So he's coming out to them. Here, here, you want to go? You want to go see their god? Look what's going to happen to them. Very good point. That's exactly right. You know, if their gods won't be able to save them, why would Judah trust in them? Good, good observation. Four to seven. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of you nation of Israel. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you And you with meadows for the shepherds and folds for the flock. This seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortune. This is God's judgment against what nation? Yeah, the Philistines. What direction was Philistia from Judah? West. West. So this is the nation on the west. The Philistines were normally thought to be composed of how many city-states? Five. Five. How many do you see here? Four. Which four? Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gaza. What was the fifth one that's left out? Yeah. Also left out in Amos, in Zechariah, and in Jeremiah, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what I think is, it probably destroyed. Because if it's left out in like four different ones that mention the other four, my guess is by this time, there's no more Gath. Although, Gath was, I think, the most famous of those city-states, because the most famous Philistine there ever was came from Gath. Who is that? Goliath. By the way, do you notice one of the names of these cities as being a, a modern name for an area? Gaza. You ever heard of the Gaza Strip that they're fighting over between Israel and the Palestinians and whatever? That's from this. That's where this is. Right there in the Gaza uh, area. Um, so what's God going to do with the Philistines? Same fate as you. Destroy 
Why? Verse 5, the word of the Lord is against you. That shows you how powerful it is. God's word is against them. By the way, in verse 4, he's going from south to north. When he goes Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. And he makes puns, but you can't translate puns into another language. For example, Gaza and abandoned sound alike. And uh, Ekron and uprooted sound alike. He makes puns in Hebrew, but you just can't translate those. Maybe you cool if you spoke Hebrew. Um, and, they, and, and one of the things that you see in this is that God's people will possess this territory. It should have belonged to them anyway. And now you see, ultimately, the remnant of the house of Judah, verse 7, is able to occupy Philistine territory. So God's people ultimately win the victory over the Philistines, and God's judgment falls upon them. Comments or questions through verse 7? Kevin? You said the Philistines were on the west of the Israelites, was that like on the rim of the Mediterranean? It was. Uh, It was the lower Mediterranean. Right to the left of Judah. Yeah. I don't know. For me, right and left helps. Sometimes east and west. I don't know. Do you know you're east and the west intuitively? Cool. Guys tend to and girls don't. Is that a a gender uh, bias statement? Do girls, do you know you're east from your west? Okay, it's always going to be like that. I, do, I just know that my house is in the south. Yeah, that is what. Alright. On a map. On a map. East is always to your right. West is always to your left. Okay? Alright. Uh, 8 through 11. 8 through 11. I've heard about the Lord and the revival of the city of Ammon, which faith has come to my people and become ignorant of their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, and the sons of Ammon like the one, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunge them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride because they have taught them to become ignorant against the people of the Lord of the hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them for he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nation will bow down to them. And they will have a Alright, so we're talking about what two nations here? Moab and Ammon. What direction were Moab and Ammon from Judah? East. East to the right. Moab and Ammon were descended from whom? Lot and his daughters, if you remember that unedifying episode. And uh, Moab was right to the right of the Dead Sea. Ammon had even a more precarious location, and this is important in understanding Ammonite psychology. You remember how when the Israelites were coming up to the land of Canaan, They conquered the territory of Sihon and Og on the right-hand side of the Jordan River. Remember what the Israelite tribes said then? Do what? No, no. When they conquered that area on the right-hand side of the Jordan River. Didn't didn't they say, like, we're good, we'll stay here? 
how many tribes wanted to stay there? Two and a half tribes said, we want to take this land on the right-hand side of the Jordan River. Who were those two and a half tribes? Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh going south to north. And the Ammonite territory was right to the right of those two and a half tribes. Right to the east of that. You know what was to the east of the Ammonite territory? Desert. Desert. Guess what you don't do? Inhabit the desert. So guess what the Ammonites always tried to do when they decided they wanted to get a little more territory for themselves? Invade Gilead. Invade the land of the two and a half tribes. Do you remember some specific times when the Ammonites tried to invade Gilead? Nahash, the Ammonite king in the days of who? Who was the Saul? Nahash was invading what city? Jabesh? Gilead. You know those cities that are hyphenated Gilead? That's like, you know, um, Indianapolis, Indiana. The Indiana part means it's in the state of Indiana. Well, the Gilead part means it's in the state of Gilead. That is, to the right-hand side of the Jordan River in the two and a half tribes. So what did Nahash the Ammonite want to do with the men of Jabesh Gilead? Pluck out their right eye. Why their right eye? Yeah, exactly. Most people are right-handed. They have their sword in their right hand, their shield in their left hand. They cover their left eye, only leaving a little bit of their head exposed to be able to see with their right eye. You pluck out their right eye. Now they've got to leave too much of their head exposed to fight because they got to see out of their left eye. So that's what Nahash did. Saul destroyed them by the power of God. Remember another time when the Ammonites tried to invade Gilead? In the days of the judges? Remember which judge fought against the Ammonites? There's only 12 or 15 judges. I want to say Gideon. You're wrong. (laughs) I wanted to say that. Who? Jephthah. Jephthah! (laughs) Who told you, Josh? (laughs) Alright, guys, speak for yourself next time. Alright, yeah, Jephthah! (laughs) Who knew that? Is that you? You've been saying like the past five minutes. Okay. You didn't hear me. <laughs> Sorry. You gotta, you know, when you get to be, uh, you know, 25 like me, you lose your hearing. So, uh, so Jephthah had a big argument with the Ammonites over who should own that territory. Well, look right here at Moab and Ammon. Verse 8, I've heard the taunting of Moab, the revivings of the son of Ammon, which they taunted by people and become arrogant against their territory. That means the Moabite-Ammonite coalition were trying to get some of Gilead's territory, some of the Israelite territory, and annex that for themselves. What does God say he's going to do with Moab and Ammon? Do you see any appropriateness in telling Moab and Ammon they're going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, exactly. The two nations that began when Lot escaped the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah now are going to fall uh, prey to the same destiny as they had. 
and uh, God's people will possess that territory. Verse 10, what's he condemning Moab and Ammon for? Pride. Which of those nations was especially known for pride? Moab. There are so many verses that just really, really focus on Moab's pride. That must have been notorious. We've heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury. His idol boasts are false. That's Isaiah 16, 6. Does that sound like Moab was proud? And listen to this one. Um, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He's very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. That's Jeremiah 48, 29. And there are other passages that talk about how proud Moab was too. How does God feel about pride? It's an abomination. That's a good word for that. So, God's going to destroy Moab and Ammon. But I'll tell you, verse 11 says it's going to have an impact greater than just Moab and Ammon. Who else is going to be affected by their destruction? The world. Oh, God. Their gods. What's going to happen to their gods? They're going to starve. They're going to starve. That's a little strange. How are the Moabite and Ammonite gods going to starve? When God destroys Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites won't be able to offer any more sacrifices to their gods, and so the gods won't have anything to eat. In the pagan concept, the sacrifices were a way of feeding your gods. But if you destroy the people, then... They don't get any sacrifices and they starve to death. What do you think about gods like that? Kind of like yeah. Sound like kids. Kind of pathetic, don't you think? Yeah. If you don't feed your gods, they starve. So if God destroys the people, then those gods starve. Here is one of the most amazing verses in the Old Testament. The last half of verse 11. And all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him. Everyone from his own place. Now I don't know if you realize how significant that is. What's significant about saying all those different nations will bow down to God, everyone from his own place? What's significant about that? Not interesting. Not in Jerusalem. See, before, the worship had to be in Jerusalem, in the temple. But God is saying that it's going to come about that you can worship him anywhere. You're going to bow down before him in your own place. Do you remember anybody else in the Bible that talked about how worship wasn't going to be tied to one single place anymore? John 4. John 4, Jesus at the woman at the well. You're also right. Stephen's speech in Acts 7 deals with that a lot. Yes. So, this is the Old Testament prophesying what Jesus said in John 4. It's not going to matter where you are anymore. Today, do we have to go back to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God? No, because of this change. Alright, so that's a really significant prophecy right there. Do you have comments or questions through verse 11? Yes. Isn't Ammon the capital of Jordan now? It is. Except the 
don't call it Ammon, they call it Ammon. But yes, based upon the Ammonites from that region, Ammon is the capital of Jordan. Anything else? Sure. Uh, you know, like, the NASB and the ESV I think translate the word awesome to terrifying, I think. And the word in New King James is the word awesome. And I, just means the word awesome is, is a little more, I think it makes sense for passage for me, because it's just me the idea of when the Lord does this, not just he terrifying, but people are going to be in awe of who he is. And in a way, we think of that as being arrogant, as almost, we almost see God as arrogant. Oh, he just wants all the glory for himself. But the fact is, the reason he's doing this is so people will come to him. The reason he's doing this is at the end of verse 11, so that people will worship him, because it's what's best for them. And I think it's a good thing to see. Even though he's so focused on destroying them and, and grabbing out the sin, that's not his main goal. His main goal is to have them all come back. He also wants the justice to be served if he does that. But yes. Other thoughts? Yes, Kevin. In verse 11, why does it say, and all the coastlands of the nations? Just the coastlands. Well, the coastlands just refer, I think, to the other nations. He uses coastlands a lot to just talk about all those various nations. Because for them, where were the nations? Many of them were around the Mediterranean. That's a lot of what they knew. So the coastlands is a term they use a lot of times for just the various nations. Other questions or comments? All right. Verse 12. You also, o Ethiopians, will be slain by the sword. That's short and sweet. Ethiopia was. The Ethiopians were in what direction from Judah? South. South. West. We're going to say south. Way more south than west. Maybe a tad. I'm not even sure. You have to curve to the west. You have to curve to the west. It's near Egypt. Ethiopia is actually a little bit south uh, east of Egypt. Okay. So I pretty much do south. That doesn't make a difference. I always think of Egypt. And what's going to happen to the Ethiopians? Slain by the sword. That's that. Alright, now we leave. we've got one direction left. Verse 13 to 15. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness, blocked the light out of her midst. All these with him, which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the top of her boat. Birds will say to the windows, desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar this is the exalted city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for peace. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Alright, we're talking about what nation here? Serious. And what direction? North. Because they always came out of the north. They were really uh, east northeast. But they came out of the north, so we call them the nation from the north. And what particular city does he single out of Assyria? Yeah. And what's he going to do? Right. Just destroy it. Destroy it to the point of what? What's it going to be like? 
Dasilah, a place for solitary desert creatures. A ghost town, exactly. And this was the exalted city, verse 15, that used to say what? Yeah. What is that? What is that mentality? Selfish and proud. Yeah. They just thought they were all it, and there was nothing else besides them. They thought they were on top of the world. The Assyrians were on top of the world for a while. They were the world empire for a while, and Nineveh, the chief city of the Assyrians. How quickly did Assyria go down? In about 15 years, Assyria went from on top to gone. 15 or 20 years. Remember what nation conquered Assyria? Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. And it was about 15 or 20 years. Babylon just rose up and conquered them and, and wiped them out. It's very interesting because Nineveh was such a key, large, powerful city. There is a Greek historian. I don't know how you pronounce this. Some of you guys know all this stuff better than I do. Xenophon or Xenophon. Does that mean Anybody know Greek history? Xenophon. or Xenophon. X-E-O-N. I know. X-E-N-O-P-H-O-N. Whatever. He wrote in, I think, 401 B.C., about 200 years later, and said nobody knew where Nineveh in 200 years, Nineveh went from being the world empire's capital city to not even people knowing where it had been. That's really wiping it out. That's pretty much devastation. Now, you think about this. I want to, some of you know this, so don't give it away. But I want to tell you a true story. Um, a few years ago, I used to study with some young preachers, and we were going through Zephaniah. And we went through this section and we were talking about how, you know, sometimes we get proud and we feel like nothing could ever happen to us. We can be a lot like Assyria and Nineveh. You know, what, what if I were to tell you that in 20 years, the U.S. will be totally wiped out? Would you believe that? I mean, it's hard to imagine that could ever be the case. You know, we're still pretty powerful right now. Can you think that that could ever happen? Can you imagine how Assyria felt? You know, when they were so powerful, how they felt like it could never happen to them. So we were discussing that, kind of talking about that, and kind of trying to humble ourselves with that. And then we moved on to chapter 3. And about 10 minutes after we moved on to chapter 3, Sandra came up to the office and walked in and told us about how the Twin Towers had fallen because the planes had come into them. That was the most eerie thing because we'd just been talking about all that. And that's right, some of you are old enough to remember that day. You know, it was like, what else is going to happen? Who's invading us? What's going to, you know, it was like, you know, at first, and we went home and started watching TV, and it was like, on the TV, every 
two minutes, the Twin Towers fell again. <laughs> you got to see that over and over and over and over again. And they stopped all planes, and they were missing a plane. They didn't know where it was. They didn't know what other planes were going to run into what, you know, and so forth. And, oh, man, it was just like, wow. And we just studied this. That was really bizarre. You know, but it just it's helpful for us to realize no nation is invincible. I don't care how powerful the U.S. is. We may be around 20 years from now. We may be gone. It doesn't, you know, the Lord will bring us down when he chooses to. And our strength will have nothing to do with that. When the Lord wants to bring somebody down, he'll bring them down. <laughs> he did that with Assyria. 70 years later, he did it with Babylon itself. You know, the Lord's in charge. We need to humble ourselves. Whether, you know, as a nation, as a church, as an individual, we, we depend on the Lord. But that was, that was timing. <laughs> You know, that was the Lord, I think, you know, helping us to have impact uh, with that. I think it's interesting, you know, we just overlay a few comments recently finished studying Revelations as a group, and how that's a commentary on the way God deals with nations. If you look at chapter 18, where the figure of Babylon falls, I think it's interesting to notice, especially in chapter 18, verses 10 following, that the only ones who really mourn the fall of the nation are the merchants whose life uh, lifestyle depends on the economy that flows in and out of that. And that's interesting to think of. You know, if we get too big for our bridges, God's going to take us out. And the only ones who are going to care are the ones who have a livelihood off the economy with our country. Yeah, that's always the way it is. Worldly friends are only friends as long as you, uh, you know, are a source of revenue for them. <laughs> Other comments and thoughts? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves, but leave nothing to the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all the deeds corrupt. Think about reading this for the first time. You read verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the tyrannical city. I don't know that they would have known yet what city he meant. What city might they have imagined he was meaning? Nineveh. But he's not. And verse 2 makes that clear. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. He's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was rebellious and wouldn't listen to God, wouldn't turn to God, wouldn't trust in God, and God was going to break her down. Now, when he says that she did not trust in the Lord, he did not mean she didn't trust. 
She trusted a lot, just not in the Lord. What all did Jerusalem trust in? Money. Money. Other nations. Other nations. Other gods. Other gods. Military. Military power. You all just covered the very ones I had on my notes. Um, yeah, we're like that. What do we trust in? Military lines. Sure. Military strength. What do we trust in as individuals? One another. What about ourselves do we trust in? Our, our intelligence. Our abilities. Our strength. Our strength. Our appearance. All kinds of stuff. We tend to trust in everything but the Lord. We tend to listen, but not to God. We tend to draw near, but not, with, not to the Lord. You know, that's the thing. This nation wasn't listening to God. Wasn't drawing near to God. Wasn't trusting in God. Where are we at if we're not focused on the Lord? You know, we'd be in the same situation. We'll be a rebellious nation that God will judge if we don't trust in Him. Look at the leadership of this nation. Verse 3. What were her princes like? That doesn't sound too good. What about her judges? Wolves at evening. Now, what do you think about a wolf? What is the primary characteristic of a wolf? Hungry. We have a favorite rare adjective that we use for wolves. Ravenous. That, that just fits a wolf. And particularly a wolf in the evening. I think we're imagining this wolf has not found any prey during the day. Wow. This wolf will lunge on its helpless victims, gnawing the meat off the bones, leaving nothing till morning. That's the leadership of Judah. They were exploiting and preying on the weak and the vulnerable like a bunch of night-prowling wolves. Her prophets, what are they like? Which means what? What's that saying about the prophets? They're not really prophets. What makes them reckless and treacherous? They say whatever they want to say because they want Yes, that's exactly right. They don't, they're not careful to speak the word of the Lord. They recklessly just teach out of their own head and claim that it comes from God. They use the title prophet for their own purposes. The priests, what did they do? Yes, they're using their office as priest of God to further their own agenda. So you see both the civil leadership, the princes and the judges, and the religious leadership, the prophets and the priests, were wicked and unfaithful to God. In fact, we know from other passages, what usually influenced most the prophet's message? Yeah, money. They, they'd say nicer things to people who paid them more. Uh, so they adapted the message to, the, uh, to fit the salary. That's certainly not faithfulness to God. That's what was going on in this nation. Look, at, by contrast, at verse 5. What was the Lord like? 
righteous. He was totally righteous, just. And what else can you see about God in verse five? He doesn't fail. He's so put that positively. The Lord is very unfailing. Unfailing. <laughs> the Lord is very successful. Faithful, reliable, consistent. You can count on God. He's going to be the same all the time. What are we like? We're not so faithful and consistent. But the Lord every morning, He's just never fails, always does the right thing. That's the model for us. God's as regular as the sunrise in terms of His giving justice and righteousness. He's always dependable. He has destroyed the other nations. Verse 6. Thinking, verse 7, surely now you'll fear me and listen to me. Were they? No. But they were eager to corrupt their deeds. You know, it's like the next, the house next door is burning. But they kept on sleeping, oblivious to God's judgment. Here God is judging all these other nations. And they're like, well, we're doing fine. They should have learned the lesson. God punishes the wicked. How many times in history has God punished the wicked? So what would make us think he won't do that to us if we're wicked? Because we don't want to believe it. Yeah, exactly. Comments and questions on this section. This is a powerful section. We just like anything else, it's parallel to the way any nation will react to the truth of God and the way God will react to our reaction to the truth of God. You know, there's just a lot of stuff that, that we'll do as people that happens over and over again. Yes. It's nothing new. I mean, because we see this kind of stuff you Rome I guess you can really see the pride and their arrogance really just jump out here. It's almost in the end of verse 7. But they are, were eager to corrupt all their deeds. It's almost like they're doing it just in spite of it. Like, like they're, you know, just they're actively trying to pursue things and, and to be corrupt and to be false and, and evil. It means it's, it's kind of like you're not going to tell them what to do, and I'm going to do it, do it anyway, kind of attitude. I wonder if God doesn't see people that way today. It's almost like they're eager to do wrong. You know, does He ever see us that way? Think about, you know, your own life. You know, does He see you eager? to take his name in vain, eager to be dishonest, eager to be impure, etc. You know, I mean, it's like, sometimes it's like, we seem to have a just a, a zeal for sin. That's horrible. That's horrible. Other comments or questions? Cameron. I think it's kind of funny how this the whole last chapter the Israelites are thinking, oh yeah, yeah, do that, oh yeah, do that, and that, that's going to be great. Punch these other nations. And then the first verse, they're thinking, like you said, oh yeah, destroy that city. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't, don't do that. It's easy to want God to punish our enemies. But God's a just God, so if we behave like our enemies, we'll get it too. Other thoughts? Cass? No, I think maybe something that they may have done is if they're 
they weren't really sorry. They just kind of wanted me to get out of it. To where they're like, oh, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll change, I'll change, just let me live. And if he would have, they probably just would have went back to the ways. And I think we can apply it to where we must stay strong and stay with the Lord. Amen. No matter what. Good point. All right, why don't we take a break for a little bit, and then we'll come back and work on the rest of this, and we'll die. Are, uh, in Zephaniah chapter 3, would somebody read 8 to 13? Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness and leave my decisions to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms and pour them out by my indignation, all my burning angels. For all the earth will be devoured by the power of my zeal. For then I will uh, give to the people pierced by goats, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will have filled no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalted ones. And you will never again be haughty or on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and humble people, and they will refuge in the middle of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will be, do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceit tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down, and there will no one, uh, with no one to make them tremble. You see some things here that are interesting and important in understanding what God was doing. In verse 8, what do you see God doing? Making a decision. Two. Gather nations. Two. Wait. And two. To judge. To judge. To pour out his burning anger. And devour them. Isn't that what he's been saying? He is going to punish and destroy the wicked nations. But for what reason? Or at least what's one of the things he will accomplish when he pours out his anger against the wicked nations? Verse 9. Will he purified? They will what? Be purified? They'll be purified. God's judgments are often judgments that are like a purging, like trying to burn off and destroy the wicked so he can purge out, refine out a purified remnant that he can bless. It's kind of like if you had, if you like dug for gold or mined for gold, whatever, but you had gold that was just, you know, 5% gold and 95% garbage. You run it through the, the furnace or whatever and you purify off the gold and destroy the rest of it. God's judgments are trying to destroy the wicked so he can bless the people with purified lips that call on the name of the Lord. You know, God wants to get down to a people that can be his people so that he can bless them. People that serve him shoulder to shoulder. In fact, what do you see these purified peoples doing in verse 10? Bringing offerings. And I wonder, who are, what are the offerings that they were bringing? 
What kind of offerings do people bring to God today? You might think of a couple things, but... Praises? They may bring praise and so forth. Ourselves. I think he may mean something else. What else? What other kinds of offerings do we bring to God? Prayer. That too. Family. What about sacrifice? What about when we, when we give something that we don't, that we really want? All that's true. I'm thinking of something else. I'm thinking of other souls. I'm thinking of other people. I think that's probably the idea by analogy with some passages in Isaiah and so forth, that you've got these people from way far away that are bringing other people to God. And those are the offerings we bring. Have you ever thought about it that way? When we bring somebody to the Lord, it's like we're bringing an offering to God. We're bringing some other person to glorify and serve God. I think that may be the idea with this. You can think about that. In verse 11, they're not going to feel any more shame for their deeds because God's going to remove the proud ones from them and going to leave a humble, lowly people that take refuge in God. So God's purging out the wicked to refine out a purified, faithful people that he can bless because that's what he really wants to do. And you look at the characteristics of these people. That's one of the things you can do in this. Just look through this passage and see what kind of people does God want to bless. What's the remnant really like? What were they like in verse 13? They're just. They're just. They're honest. They're honest. You know, look at verse uh, 5. They're a lot like God is. They're honest, they're just, they're righteous. They are the kind of people that follow God's character. These are the people he blesses. And so that's part of the, the, the thing God was trying to do with the judging, purging out a purified people that he can bless. And that's what he ends up with in Christ. The purified remnant that he blesses. So are you I guess some of the end of these problems I get kind of confused sometimes. Whenever it talks about the remnant, I mean there's a ton of problems at the end of the chapter, the last time chapter talk about the remnant, the remnant, the remnant returning, the remnant coming back. When it talks about the remnant, is it referring to the remnant that God is going to bring back from captivity or is it referring to the remnant that Christ is going to bring or both? Is it a foreshadowing of Christ? Well, when you have these blessing passages, sometimes he merges the blessings from different eras. Now, I've heard this analogy. See if you can relate to this. Probably not if you've only been in central Indiana. But if you've been in other places, have you ever seen way off in the distance mountains? Now, when you look in the distance and you see various mountains, you see maybe a mountain a little closer to you and a mountain farther away. How close do those mountains appear to be together? They appear like they're just right on top of each other. When you actually get there, yeah, sometimes they're way far apart. As from Zephaniah's standpoint, as he looked at the future, he saw all these things in the future. He didn't necessarily see them with such a great distance. They were all just future blessings for God's people. 
And so in this passage, he's certainly primarily looking at the remnant through Christ. I wouldn't deny that there's a sense in which the remnant that comes back from the captivity is sort of in view, but clearly the greater focus is on the blessings of Christ. That's often true with these prophets. He does refer to a lot about the Gentiles coming and worshiping, which makes it seem that he was referring to more in the future than the remnant. Yes, and, and typically he is. Typically, whatever blessings there are in the return from captivity are just sort of a foreshadowing of the great blessings. Other comments or questions? It's kind of funny because you don't really tend to think about that as applying to you like now. Like you still kind of read it and feel like, oh, that's in the future, but... But we are really the ones that these prophets were talking about in these passages. We are the purified remnant. I hope we are if these characteristics are true of us. Other thoughts? Beyond Ethiopia is, again, just a generic term? Yes, I think for far away places, they come to the Lord. So it's the idea of the universal reach of the gospel, bringing people from everywhere. Because Ethiopia was like as far away as you could get. You know, it sounds far away even to us, doesn't it? It's kind of like, what, what's the term we use for way far away? Over yonder. There we go. Timbuktu. Is that, is that what we say? That's probably an older expression. Does the younger generation ever use Timbuktu that way? Well, in my generation, Timbuktu was like the mythical faraway place. I think it's over there. Where is Timbuktu? North Africa somewhere. Morocco or somewhere like that. Yeah, there it really is. There's a city. It's a city, isn't it? Think of the city. I ain't never been there. All right. Comments or questions through 13? Yes, Chris. With the layout of the New Record Center, why is the... Why is it broken down a lot of places? Looks like a start of a new paragraph or a new sentence, and it's part of the previous sentence. You have any? You just notice at the end of the eleven, you will never again be haughty on my holy mountains, separated as a name. Why is that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, they're trying to put it in poetic form. There may be some times that there is meter in the original that separates it out. But I don't know that it always is. Uh, I'm not I'm not good with that. I don't read Hebrew. So the Hebrew meter doesn't mean a thing to me. Uh, but it could be. I mean, that would be... There is meter sometimes in their poetry. But. Other thoughts? Yes, Cameron. I, I was beginning to think, if I was right reading through this as an Israelite, and this time, I'd be thinking, at all of this, if I had people, I want this part. I want this be purified, be not dead. And <laughs> the problem is, you have to do the work, too. They're probably thinking, I'll take this part. That, that I'll just choose. But they have to not be the proud that are getting wiped out. They have to not be the evil that's getting gotten rid of. Exactly. Yeah, this is a challenge for us. This is something to live up to. If we want to be blessed people, here's what we have to be like. This is a great passage. I mean, this is like the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in the Old Testament. You know, it gives you the characteristic of God's blessed people. You know, and it's, I mean, you can, 
You could go through the prophets and you could get a lot of the New Testament out of the prophets. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how much they reveal about what we know in Christ. How did God know? How, how did they know that? You know, if they weren't inspired by God, wow, that would have been, you know, unbelievable. I mean, it clearly shows you they knew exactly what God was going to do through Christ. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, 14 to 20. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy, and he will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Okay, so in verse 14, what's he encouraged uh, for, uh, among his people? Shout for joy. Shout for joy. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against him. Absolutely. God has taken away his judgments. He's taken away the enemies. He's in your midst. You have the Lord with you. Rejoice. What a great blessing. Here's a book that started with universal judgment. And now it's rejoice. God is with you. God is blessing you. He's destroying your enemies. You do not need to fear anymore. You know, in that day, verse 16, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. When you realize all that the Lord has done, how he's destroyed the enemies, sin and Satan and, and our bondage, and he's given us new life and victory, we rejoice. And we don't let our hands fall limp. Now what does it mean when it says, don't let your hands fall limp? Maybe, but I don't think it's just despair and giving up. If your hands are limp, what does that tell you about you? Lazy. You're lazy. Relaxed. Not doing anything. He says don't let your hands fall limp. We are saved to serve. To get busy and do the work of God. Rejoice and get involved and be servants of His. Don't let your hands fall limp. Start using them in the service of God. Here's the great victory that God has given. We ought to be jubilant and serving. This is an exciting, you know, passage. This passage needs to be shouted. Comments and thoughts on 14 to 16? Jerry, just like you said, it's helpful to me to think about the fact that this is the Lord that is doing all those things. 
maybe for two reasons. One, if you feel like you are the one who has earned these blessings for yourself by be, becoming so righteous and humble and well, I mean, then you're just being proud. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's very comforting that it's the Lord who purifies you and the Lord who blesses you, and so you don't have to rely on yourself and trying to earn it yourself. You trust in the Lord and His grace. It's really helpful to remember that for me. Because if we didn't, we'd be in big trouble. We know we're not able to do it ourselves. We'd just be in despair. Good points. Cass? Um, I also see here that if we do have the Lord on our side and we really do try and serve Him, we can't lose. And it's so encouraging to see that He's always with us. And just here we see that, you know, back we see that the things he's going to do them now he's giving them reasons to rejoice amen other comments through 16 i think it's interesting you just notice how it, it, we, there's no uncertainty that god's judgment is righteous you know my dad says all, all the time that the only time rebellions are justified is when they win and <laughs> in this sense we can see that god has brought about a judgment and every time he brings about that judgment, there's always a period of rejoicing that follows for those who are left. And because there is that rejoicing period, we can see that what has occurred is truly right and good and pure. Okay, good point. My, I'd say one of my top 20 favorite verses in the Bible, <laughs> maybe top 10, is verse 17. Remember Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now the thing that's amazing about this is this is talking about how God feels about us. When, when God becomes our joy, we become his joy. He gets to the point where he is so excited to have us as his people. He exalts over us with joy. And then he gets choked up. And falls silent in his love. And then he rejoices over us with shouts of joy. That is so amazing. How do you think of God feeling about you? I think a lot of times we have the idea of God that he holds his nose and he closes his eyes and he hates to even get close to us but okay, I said I was going to save you I will, but please don't, want, don't get too close to me you know, like God's just so disgusted and revolted by us that he really, he just can't hardly stand it to be nice to us that's not the God that the, new, that the Bible pictures the God of the Bible takes his people, and he's so excited. He's so joyful. He loves them so much. Can you imagine God shouting in joy to have you as one of his children? You know, being so close to you that he, he's choked up when he thinks about how much he loves you and cares about you and how glad he is that you're one of his people. That is not my picture of God. 
That is an amazing thing to think that God loves us like that. That God is happy to be close to us. Isn't that amazing? Hey, that's overwhelming. That's what he's telling them. God purifies them. God washes away their sins. And then he's so excited because they're his pure, righteous, holy people that he's so glad that he gets to love and be close to. What do you think about that? Praise the mind rejoicing sport players. You know, the idea that the big kids come and they're so excited they can't contain it. I mean, that's a pretty carnal example, but it's it's, it's the same feeling is what I kind of see right here in God. Yes, yeah, it almost seems undignified for God, doesn't it? Exactly. You know, do you imagine God jumping up and down in joy? <laughs> you know, shouting in joy, he's so excited. Now, I don't mean for us to think of God in irreverent terms. God is a great God. He's a fearful God. You see that earlier. But with the people that God has saved, that he is purified. He actually is emotional about his love for them and his excitement over being close to them. That is just amazing that a great God like ours would feel about us that way. It, I think it helps me to feel closer to God. It helps me not to feel like he's so distant. Because if I think he's always holding his nose and closing his eyes, and trying to turn his head away so he doesn't have to be too close to me. It's hard to love him and feel close to him. You just feel so dirty and disgusting to him. But when you see you've washed all your sins away completely, and he's really excited about being your father. And he's excited about you being his child. And not for you. He's, he's shouting in joy over you. That's just amazing. I think that's cool. And I think we need that. Obviously, this is not for unfaithful people. Look at the rest of Zephaniah. But this is for those of us who are really striving to serve God. So, verse 18, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. That is, they grieve over being exiled and cut off from the place of worship and being able to observe the feast days. They wanted to be with the Lord. The reproach of the exile is a burden on them, a burden not because they miss home, but because they miss that communion with God in the temple. And he's going to deal with their oppressors and he's going to save the lame and the outcast and turn them into praise and renown. He's going to bring them and gather them together, and he's going to honor and exalt them before the peoples on the earth, says the Lord. God is going to take those who have been beat up and battered by sin and bring them back to him and make something out of them again and make them the kind of people that are honorable, praiseworthy people. This is not what they do for themselves. We could never do that for ourselves. But it is the grace and mercy of God making something out of his people. Comments and questions? Amen. <laughs> Cameron. In verse 16, it, um, when it's talking about your 
and falling with. And it goes right into the Lord your God is in your midst. And it seems to stand out to me to be like, don't be lazy. For your God is in He's a victorious warrior. He will exalt you with with joy. And so forth with he will, he will. So don't be lazy yourself. Your God is in you, if you want to be like God, don't be like. Amen. Good point. Other thoughts, Cass? Kind of reminds me of here of whatever in verse uh, 17. Kind of reminds me of Job. Um, you know, the Lord said, you know, it's proud of Job. And he said, it's an announcement of Job. I mean, and think about it. If the Lord said about us how much, it was just like he was so happy. And we strive every day to be like that. That'd be cool to know that God was saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Cass? Right? Why do you think he refers to himself in the third person in verse 17 and back to the first person in 18 to the end? <laughs> well, I think it's sort of Zephaniah talking about God in verse 17. And then it's back to God speaking for himself starting in verse 18. Now why that shift? I'm not really sure. Um, though the shift started earlier than that. I mean, even 15, the Lord's taken away his judgment, he's cleared, and so forth. So really, verse 14 to 17 is third person for God, and then God speaks again in 18. I don't know why exactly, but he does that frequently. Alternates back and forth. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And sometimes it's like the prophet talking and then it merges into God talking and it's hard to even draw the dividing line. That happens a lot in the prophets. You're, sometimes it's like, where did this go from the prophet to God? And it's kind of hard to find the line. It kind of merges. Other comments or questions on Zephaniah? I like this section better than I liked the beginning. Um, but I think I, like I think this section would not be as powerful had we not read the beginning. Yes. Good point. Yeah. God's love and grace wouldn't mean as much if it weren't for God's wrath. You stop and think about it. Other comments? I like how you're saying yeah, how it wouldn't be God's love and all, maybe God's love without his wrath. I mean, sure, either way, with wrath, um, it, that's great. And with uh, his love, that's great. When you get it all together, and you have God has like amazing both and amazing everything. And just, he really is an awesome God. And it's just amazing to think of how much he can do and how much he loves us and yet punishes us if we don't follow him. You're right. These books are written to teach us about God. That's the first lesson to get out of. Absolutely. Other thoughts? Okay. Obadiah.